0: Strange Stories UK here This is part 2 of Joan Woodhouse Murder and Cover-Up at Arundel Series 4 Episode 17 So we'll get right on with the story, I'm assuming people have listened to part 1 As I say, this is part 2 The Woodhouse family still had doubts about Inspector Narborough and couldn't understand why Stilwell had not been arrested given the knowledge that the police had about him what the Woodhouse family did not know was that Narborough had been to see Mr Jackson, Stilwell's solicitor, so to suggest that Stilwell claimed the death was an accident and to plead guilty to manslaughter. Jackson refused, saying that his client was totally innocent. The Woodhouse family came to visit Arundel on several occasions. Other times it was friends of Joan and the sisters and friends of a Joan's late mother. They stayed in the Norfolk Hotel, which is still a landmark building in Arundel today. They were well known in local tea rooms. They visited the spot where Joan had died and built a little shrine carving Joan's initials in the bark of a nearby tree in box Copse. The local people wished them luck, saying that they all knew who had done it, Thomas Stilwell. The coroner at Horsham was Mr F.W. Butler. He was 89 years of age when he opened the inquest at Arundel Town Hall on Monday morning the 22nd of November 1948. The inquest had been adjourned when it first opened on the 13th of August. Today the maximum age of a coroner is 75 years old before they have to retire. Three solicitors introduced themselves during the inquest. Mr Falconer was for the family of John Woodhouse... Mr. Porter was for the police and Mr. Vincent Jackson was for the witness, Thomas Philip George Stilwell. Mr. Jackson told his client Stilwell never to speak unless he was present. Jackson proved to be very protective of Stilwell. Legal arguments developed between Porter and Jackson over what and could not be asked of the witness. During the inquest, Stilwell kept answering questions with, ''I do not remember.'' "'I'm not sure about the date,' and similar responses. His answers had shifted from his original statements. The jury foreman asked the coroner for clarification. He said that the jury would like to know if it's normal or if there's any special reason why the witness, Tom Stilwell, should be legally representative, if he's only giving evidence about finding the body. The coroner answered, "'I cannot tell you. You must use your own judgment." When Detective Inspector Narborough gave evidence, he told how Joan had been murdered by a stranger and that she had been of exemplary character. There was criticism of the coroner, who was 89 years of age. It was thought that his understanding of the case was poor. He got names and facts wrong at times. The inquest did make it quite clear, though, that Joe was not an Arundel to meet up with another lover. A newspaper report at the inquest stated... Miss Joan Woodhouse, the 27-year-old girl who was found strangled in Arundel Castle Park on the August the 8th, was a woman of exemplary character, a Scotland Yard detective told the jury at an inquest. He said that she went to the park alone to sunbathe, and was there murdered by a complete stranger. Every person holidaying in the district during August bank holiday weekend and every male resident of the district are being interviewed by the police. As a result, we are satisfied that Miss Woodhouse climbed into this lonely, secluded spot where she removed her frock, either to sunbathe or because she was hot and exhausted after the climb, and there she was murdered. He said the jury returned a verdict of murder by person or persons unknown. The Sunday pictorial newspaper were forced to print an apology to Joan after their slanderous comments, and they also printed Joan's Rules for life. Mr Woodhouse had lost faith in the ability of the police to solve the case. The unsolved murder was causing various crackpots to confess it to the press. The Woodhouse family wanted an end to the speculation and decided to put up a reward leading to the arrest of Jones' killer. They said they'd tried to offer a reward, a reward earlier, but the police persuaded them that it may be proved to be counterproductive, as it was common knowledge that Stillwell was guilty, and if a reward was offered it may encourage people to perjure themselves. Then came a bombshell to the Woodhouse family when they learnt that Inspector Narborough had resigned from the police force. Jones' father felt let down. He wrote to the Home Secretary, the Public Prosecutor and the Attorney General on the twenty fourth of april nineteen forty nine. He let out his feelings and frustrations. He was asking why the people that lived on the Duke of Norfolk's Arundel estate, where Joan's body was found, why hadn't they been questioned immediately after the murder? Why was Thomas Stilwell hand bandaged and why was this not investigated? Why was the struggle evidenced by marks on the bark of the tree at Box Cops not investigated fully and where were the suspects' boots Why were the people who witnessed Stilwell in the park at the time of the murder not interviewed? And who had been briefing the press with erroneous information in giving misleading information about Joan and other matters? There were so many unanswered questions that the police had not investigated. Later, Detective Spooner told the family that Narborough had been forced to resign. Perhaps it was he who had failed to caution Thomas Stilwell before the interview. He was responsible for the inquiry and the investigation had been a failure. Narborough had to take responsibility. The family decided to get a good private detective. Joan was the only child of the family and they felt that her potential inheritance would be best used in trying to get her some justice. They hired Thomas Percy Jacks who had a similar background and upbringing to Inspector Narborough. Jacks had been up to Detective Inspector before he left the police and setting up as a private detective. This wasn't uncommon by senior police officers who were not prepared or able to live off their pensions while still relatively young in their 40s. Thomas Jacks' son, when remembering his father in 2010, said that he was strict and as a policeman he had a reputation as a hard man. He would arrest even his own grandmother, if she broke the law. But he said that he was a sociable man. Everybody knew him in Bridlington. He would visit the pubs and mix with all sorts. I think that the detective business gave him a reasonable lifestyle. He was a Freemason. Being a Freemason was a benefit for Jack's, and he would almost certainly open doors for him and give him information during his investigations. On Monday the 10th of October 1949, Thomas Jacks arrived in Arundel. He stayed at a guest house which cost about 10 shillings a night, and he would end up staying for several weeks. Thomas presented himself at Arundel Police Station. He was aware of the importance of keeping the local police force on side. Sergeant Bristow welcomed him warmly and took him personally to box cops the murder scene. It is possible that Sergeant Bristow was uh, also a Freemason, but more likely he wanted to solve the murder of, of a young woman. Bristow went over the details of that day of the murder, and Jax is adamant that Sergeant Bristow told him that the Arundel police all believed that Stilwell to be guilty, as did most of the townspeople. Bristow handed over an inquiry file on the case, which he shouldn't really have done. Jack's copied the file, typing it up in his guesthouse room before returning it to Bristow. Police archive files show that Scotland Yard and West Sussex Police hierarchy were horrified that Sergeant Bristow had taken Jacks into his confidence and had cooperated with him so openly and keenly. There was clearly something that they wanted to hide. Otherwise, why wouldn't the police cooperate with one of their own ex-colleagues to help him investigate the murderer who were still on the run. I'm looking forward to reading these police reports when they become available in 2033. If they do become available then of course. This case may have forced Bristow to take early uh, retirement as Scotland Yard and West Sussex Police were extremely sensitive about the investigation of the case. They thought that aspects would not stand up to media spotlight. All this adds weight to the family's belief that Stilwell was not charged to save police embarrassment. Jacks rapidly reached the opinion that something stank about the investigation. The local police wanted the conviction and encouraged him, but at the higher management level and the Scotland Yard detectives, he was being frustrated at every turn. It was clear to him that the Sussex Chief of Police, a Mr Eagle, was not on side and insisted that Jax tell him of any developments, although he was not prepared to give Jax any information in return. The local people of Arundel seemed to open up to Jax. He found an important new witness, a Frederick George Chamberlain. Chamberlain was the landlord of the Black Rabbit pub, and encountered Stilwell on the afternoon of the 10th of August, the day that he had reported finding the body. Chamberlain described the encounter as follows. Tom was cycling by Chamberlain, who asked Stilwell, What's happened to you, Tom? pointed to Tom Stilwell's bandaged hand. That's the least of my worries. I've just found a body, said Stilwell, stopping his bike. Was the body an old person? asked Chamberlain, thinking perhaps that an older person may have become disorientated in the park and collapsed. No, it's a young girl of about 26 or 27, was the reply. Blimey, well, you better go off and report it, then. That's what I'm off to, replied Stilwell, and he cycled off. (coughs) Jax believed that the short conversation was of key significance for two reasons. Firstly, Stilwell's manner contradicted his behaviour at the police station when he was described as breathless and having an excitable manner. Stillwell seemed to be putting on an act at the police station, acting in a panicked manner, but when talking to Mr Chamberlain, he was his usual self. Wasn't normal, thought Jax, that on finding a body and going to report it to the police, that you stop and have a chat with someone. Another thing puzzled Jax. When Stilwell was at the lodge house at the lake borrowing a bike, why didn't he just telephone the police to report the body, as he knew that there was a phone in the building? But the main thing that interested Jax was that Stilwell claimed that the body was a woman of 26 or 27 years of age. But Jax had seen the police photographs and read the pathologist report that said that no person could say with any confidence that this was a body of a woman, let alone what the age was. So how did Stilwell estimate the victim's age so well? Other witnesses found by Jax including Philip Challon and Frederick Clements who were certain that they saw and spoke to Stillwell at Arundel Park near the murder scene on the supposed day of the murder, another witness that saw Stilwell at Swanborough Lake on the day of the murder was Andre Buller, who hired out the rowing boats. John Moby was another witness who thought that Stilwell was trying to get him as a witness to the fact that he was not at box cops on the day at the question at, at the crucial time. Thomas Jack sat down to complete his final report to the Woodhouse family in early December 1949. He was confident that he'd uncovered enough further evidence that would cause Stilwell to be charged with the offence of murder, the murder of Joan Woodhouse. His final bill to the Woodhouse family was 110 guineas plus expenses for the 55 days he had investigated in Sussex. At about the same time Stilwell seemed to be confident that he had got away without being charged. He sold his story to the Sunday Pictorial on the 26th of February, 1950. He said that he had been blamed by the local police who teased him by saying things like – found any more bodies yet, Tommy? He said that his mother was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. He said that people were saying to him – why don't you go away and make a fresh start somewhere else, Tommy? He said that he was being victimised by the local people who thought that he had been responsible for the death of Joan Woodhouse. The sunny pictorial didn't tell the whole story. This lowbrow tabloid could have had a sensational story if they printed the whole story and said that Stilwell's intention of going to the park that day of the murder was to expose himself to young girls and then to masturbate behind bushes. Those that knew of Stilwell and his habits must have been astounded and horrified at him profiteering from the gutter press. When Scotland Yard received a copy of Jack's report, they were forced to reopen the case. The week before Stillwell's story was published in the newspaper, Inspector Spooner of Scotland Yard arrived in Arundel to begin his investigation. He knew Inspector Narborough. they'd trained together and they'd been colleagues together. After Spooner had arrived, he contacted Narborough to pay his respects, but also to say that it's probably best that they did not converse about the case until after his investigation was complete as he needed to uh, approach it with a fresh perspective. Spooner was a famous detective in the tabloid press. He spent six weeks in Arundel. Soon after his arrival a strange newspaper article appeared in the Yorkshire Post on the 1st of March 1950 saying that reliable sources indicated that there was little hope of an arrest after the resumed inquiry by Inspector Spooner. This was thought to have been a story planted by the Chief Constable of Sussex, DS Eagle, who had clashed with Thomas Jacks while he was in Arundel. Eagle seemed to be doing all he could to prevent Stilwell going to court. He insisted that Jacks inform him of any new evidence. And then Eagle would try to bury it. Spooner spent six weeks in Arundel, he didn't seem to achieve very much, apart from re-interviewing witnesses. He presented his report to the Director of Public Prosecutions during May 1950. Spooner had reported on Stillwell's sexual behaviour and threats of violence, as a number of witnesses were given, to the, given in the report. As we now know, indecent exposure even to young girls was not a criminal offence. So, Stilwell could go around showing his erect penis, knowing that he could not be charged. Spooner achieved nothing while he was in Arundel. The Lord of detective, who had some famous cases behind him, seemed to find no new evidence. Inspector Spooner travelled to Bridlington by train on Wednesday, the 9th of August, 1950. He had with him some personal belongings of Jones to return to the family. There followed a tense and difficult three-hour meeting between Spooner and the Woodhouse family. Someone at the meeting said, If you don't think Stilwell did it, then why are you closing the case and not looking for anybody else? Spooner couldn't answer this, but then he snapped, and in a raised voice he said, Look, we all know that Stilwell did it. Narborough failed in his investigation and he's been sacked. He's gone. He's finished. What more do you want?' The Woodhouse family said they were dumbfounded. They replied that they wanted justice for Joan. That is when Mr Jacks told Inspector Spooner that they had no choice but to pursue a private prosecution. He didn't like that either, Mr. said Mr Jacks, who continued that it was a strange meeting all round. He said they smelt drink on Inspector Spooner's breath, which they felt was unprofessional. He was also wearing rouge on his cheeks and lipstick we couldn't take our eyes off him. Perhaps he knew his picture was going to be taken but all in all it contributed to one of the strangest encounters of my life. Spooner left the house and was met outside by reporters. He told them that there was no prospect of an arrest. The family wondered why Scotland Yard would have alerted the press to Spooner's visit as this was a private and difficult meeting. It had become clear that the DPP the Director of Public Prosecutions, had no intention of bringing Stilwell to trial. Woodhouse and Jacks decided to bring a private prosecution. They applied in August 1950. A private prosecution is a criminal procedure started by an individual or a private organisation as opposed to a prosecution that represents the state. The call for a private prosecution often is a result of a case of misconduct or the inability of the authorities to pursue justice. Loss of trust in the authorities' ability to enforce the law makes people seek the opinion of independent private experts to bring a private prosecution. The legal establishment, the government, they hate private prosecutions. They don't want them to succeed. This is because, in their opinion, they undermine the police and their role in the system, and they worry that the floodgates would open if people started winning their private prosecutions. They would lose control of the legal system. On the 30th of August, 1950, Thomas Stilwell was arrested at his home, at Fox's Oven at Offham. The next day he was refused bail at Littlehampton Magistrates' Courts and was taken on remand to Brixton Prison. The Daily Express captured a scene of Tom Stillwell being arrested. He made the front page of the newspaper. The headline was Jones murder arrest on private warrant. The committal proceedings to decide if the case would proceed to trial by jury started on Tuesday the 19th of September 1950. Critically the law dictated that the prosecution of the case would be taken over by the state, that is the Crown. So we've got a situation whereby a private prosecution is taken over by the crown and we know that the crown wanted the case to fail so they decided not to bring as they decided not to bring the case in the first place and they felt that if the case went to court it would undermine the legal profession crucially any information or evidence that was not already in the possession of the police would have to be handed over this was not reciprocal the police didn't give information that they had to the people carrying out the private prosecution. This was to prove crucial and illustrated how one side of the process was. The DPP reimbursed the cost of the inquiry including the fees paid to Thomas Jacks by the Woodhouse family. Mr. John Stuart Bass was the prosecution for the Crown and when he made his opening speech it was obvious that the prosecution was doomed to failure as everything he said favoured the defence. There was no attempt to even suggest that he was going to make a serious attempt to get this case to trial. It was an outrageous attempt to undermine the private prosecution. Dr Holden, the director of the Metropolitan Police Labs, said that they had found some hairs on Jones' brazier that did not come from Stillwell. This was a massive shock to the John Woodhouse team. It was the first time they'd ever heard of any hairs being found on Jones' clothing. Why had it not been shared with them until now? Thomas Jackson and John Woodhouse both strongly felt that something was not right about this development. The pathologist, the famous Keith Simpson, had not found any hairs when he carried out his post-mortem. If there were any other hairs, they could have come from other sources. When this new evidence was sprung during the trial, there was no preparation to question or cross-examine the claim. It was strongly suspected that Thomas Stilwell had returned to the body after the murder. It was thought that he may have left hairs on the body in an attempt to mislead the police. There were other possible causes of hairs being found on the bra, but these were not tested at the hearing as the information was not shared. New laws have now made this practice illegal. During the course of the trial, a 13-year-old Gillian Edith Parker spoke of her visits to the park with her friend Brenda in the first few weeks of August. She was there on the 10th of August when she saw Thomas Stilwell. Unbeknown to her, she was probably a target for Stilwell. When asked if the man was in court, she lifted her arm and pointed straight at him. I think that is the man over there, she said. Stillwell's defence argued that there was no evidence that the woman was murdered on the 31st of July, 1948. Therefore, they cannot claim that Stillwell was in the park when she was murdered. It was difficult to argue this point, as it's impossible to state when Joan had been murdered. Common sense would say it was on the 31st of July, and this is what the pathologist said, but it was not definite proof. Mr Bass for the prosecution did not even go through the motions of urging the magistrates to commit Stilwell for trial. He just said, That's all the evidence that the Crown can put before you. Mr Bass had made no effort to win the case for the Crown. It was an insult to the Woodhouse family that fought so hard for justice for Joan. The magistrates went to consider their verdict and within two hours they came back to the courtroom to say there was insufficient evidence to justify sending Thomas Stilwell to trial for the murder of Joan Woodhouse. Before they came back with a verdict, John Woodhouse had already left the court and headed home. He knew what the outcome was going to be and that the whole committal had just been little more than a charade. There was a celebration dinner at Chichester Hotel for Tom Stilwell that night. Meanwhile, various letters were being sent to newspapers, the police, and Thomas Jacks. Thomas Jacks received one letter talking about how Stilwell was as cunning as a fox, that he attacked women and exposed himself to women on a regular basis. They said that one of his tricks is that he'll wait for the last bus or the last train to run into Arundel. Then if there's a young woman walking home by herself, he will jump out and accost her, and she will find it very difficult to get rid of him. Also letters said that he regularly went to Arundel Park to expose himself to children. These accusations, although thought true, were never told in the committal proceedings when considering sending Stilwell for trial. There were several anonymous letters saying that it was Thomas Stilwell that was responsible for the murder of Joan Woodhouse. The newspaper seemed to accept the magistrate's view that there was insufficient evidence to send Stilwell to trial. It was only News of the World newspaper that mentioned in Stilwell's statement that he admitted being in the park on the day of the murder with his intention of acting improperly in front of small girls. This was the only public mention of Stilwell's sexual perversions and the criminal activity outside of the court, and the police interview room. It wasn't until the biography of Inspector Spooner, the great detective, was released in 1966 that it became common knowledge outside of Arundel that Thomas Stillwell was a sexual pervert. Thomas Stillwell sold his story to the Sunday Dispatch, who printed it on the 24th of September 1950. This is where the sanitised version, or the Thomas Stillwell's account, or what he went through came into print. Thomas Stilwell said the only thing that he was guilty of was finding the body. But as it was pointed out, how extraordinary that it was Stilwell who was seen talking to the girl that was later identified as Joan Woodhouse by several people on the day that she was thought to be murdered. Then it was him that found the body. What are the chances of that? And then add into the mix the fact that he regularly exposed himself to women and was known to threaten violence towards women, threatening to strip them and throw them into the river if they didn't do what he wanted them to. The Woodhouse family instructed Hector Hughes, King's counsel, a barrister, to provide counsel opinion over the case. Hector Hughes was an interesting character, a maverick, a perfect choice to try to ascertain the truth. He gave a good summary and the opinion he provided for the Woodhouse family was stated in a 5,000-word document. Hughes had the benefit of being able to view Thomas Stilwell's police statements, and this is the nearest that we have of the full text of the statements, the document that he produced. These were never aired in public. Anyway, his comments are very interesting. I'm not going to go into all of them here. I'll pick up a couple of head highlights. It was said that there were two men, a Mr. Challen and a Mr. Clements, that had seen and spoken to Stilwell in the park between 2 and 4pm on the 31st of uh, July, the day and the time that Joan was thought to have been murdered. Stilwell admitted to the police that on this day he followed the girls and he subsequently identified the girl as Joan Woodhouse. So not the girls, the girl, Joan Woodhouse. He climbed the steps to Box Cops, looking for where Channon and Clements had gone to. Stillwell admitted that he traversed Box Cops to see where they were going. Stillwell realized that they were walking away from Box Cops, where the girl had gone into the copse, and there was no w- evidence of any other person nearby. Stillwell admitted that he was sexually excited by the thought of a girl alone in the copse, and in Mr. Hughes's opinion, the circumstantial evidence pointed to the conclusion that Stilwell followed the girl into Box Cops is beyond reasonable doubt, according to his opinion. At the end of the report, Hughes wrote another section called Matters Left Unexplained. He said that although the evidence available presents points strongly at the guilt of Stilwell, there are several matters left unexplained in this strange case. He said that there was no evidence of Stilwell's clothing or footwear being found or examined, after it became clear that he was the only suspect. There was no evidence of any scratches or other injuries to his person being examined. There was no explanation of the poisoned finger that Stilwell claimed to have, its duration, its cause or its nature. It was thought by some people that Joan had bitten very hard on his hand, and this caused an injury that would have been interesting to examine the wound to see if it was in fact teeth marks that caused the wound. He said that another matter left unexplained was that there were no fingerprints taken on any of the articles. There were no pubic hairs. There was no seminal fluids on the garments. The shirt that Stillwell had worn on the 31st of July, well, we don't know what happened to that. Also, there was no explanation of what happened to the Lembar bottle that seemed to have gone missing. So, police evidence gone missing. He said that everything points strongly towards the guilt of Thomas Stillwell for the reasons already given and he signed that document on the 21st of November 1950. It was obvious that Hughes had been referring to the loss of potential evidence by the police in the section he called Matters unexplained. This had downgraded downgraded the case making prosecution very difficult. The police had made several basic mistakes for example regarding the boots worn by Stilwell on the day of the murder, the Lembar bottle, the shirt, and the rest of it. But if Hughes had openly stated police incompetence, then the likelihood that Justice Travis Humphreys, who was an upholder of the establishment values, he would knock it back with little consideration. As it was Travis Humphreys, and he was 83 years of age, and should have been retired off years previously. Today, UK judges have to retire at 70. Anyway... Humphreys quashed the final attempt to bring Stilwell to court. All the legal channels had now been exhausted, and in 1950 there was no European court to appeal to. Just a quick mention of Travis Humphreys, the 83-year-old judge. He had been part of uh, the Oscar Wilde trial, and his son was Christmas Humphreys, who we have come across before. He was a famous prosecution barrister for the Crown. I've mentioned him uh, in a number of previous podcasts. The unsolved murder of Joan Woodhouse made the newspapers over the years. It became known as a well known unsolved crime. Inspector Spooner had died in 1963, and a journalist that wrote in uh, Spooner's biography claimed that he had solved the murder, writing that Spooner believed that Joan had committed suicide and was not murdered. However, Spooner had never mentioned this to anybody else before. Spooner is also said to have doubted Dr. Simpson's, the, the pathologist's, ability as a pathologist, saying that he had made mistakes and Joan's body was far too decomposed to come to judgments about her injuries. Nobody else had ever criticised Simpson, so nobody took the book very seriously. Also, the book disclosed that Spooner was a serious heavy drinker, ...throughout his later police career and his alcoholism may have clouded his judgement and his ability to carry out his job when he was investigating the case. Martin Knight wrote the book on the case, Justice for Joan, which is very well organised and told the story well. Knight believed that Scotland Yard botched the early stages of the investigation, they would not face up to this fact and they dug themselves in deeper and deeper but they had not banked on the uh, Woodhouse family's tenacity and determination that would lead to a private prosecution. Eventually the powers of the state had to organise itself to squash the case and the private prosecution so as not to embarrass the establishment. Knight uncovered information that Inspector Narborough and the Attorney General, Hartley Shawcross, had a close working relationship during World War II and knew each other well on a friendly basis. Hartley Shawcross was the chief legal adviser to the Crown and the man who decided which cases went to court and which cases did not. Knight wonders how he would have reacted when he received a letter from the Woodhouse family, referring to the blind, stupid blunderings of Scotland Yard. The letter referred to his friend, uh, Narborough, and who he thought such an outstanding policeman I suppose it was the arrogance of such men at the time to, to put uh, personal feelings above what was the correct decision. Anyways, that's thought that Hartley Shawcross was trying to protect his friend, Inspector Narborough from criticism. In 1950, when the Woodhouse private prosecution was mounted, the notion that the legal process was anything but fair and based on the British principles of justice for all was unthinkable. But by the end of the 20th century, this idea was shot to pieces. I think the process had started around around this time of 1950. This is when the system began to be questioned. I think maybe the execution of Timothy Evans in 1950 started to change people's minds, when it became clear a couple of years later that he was innocent. Since that time, there have been so many miscarriages of justice, it's difficult to decide which examples to give. The police and the police complaint system has also been shown to be corrupt to the core. The Joan Woodhouse investigation is an early example whereby the incompetence of the initial police inquiry and the refusal to acknowledge this and to make amends destroyed at least one family's faith in British justice and allowed a dangerous sexual predator to remain free. There was another book published in 2002 by Michael de Larabetti called Fox's Oven, which was the name of Stilwell's family home. It's a story of a girl evacuated during World War Two, from London to Offham, near Arundel, and placed with a family in a f- house called Fox's Oven. In the story, the dominant mother of the family is called Agnes. Thomas Stilwell's mother was called Ethel Agnes. She had a kind, ineffective husband. The police described Thomas Stilwell Sr., As a sodden drunk and unreliable. (coughs) The husband had been a sailor. Thomas Stilwell Sr. had been a sailor and had a naval pension. Thomas Sr.'s relationship with Agnes is strained because he believes that one of his sons is not his. The local pub in the family is called the Black Rabbit. The ages of the children match up to the oldest, and the oldest son, called Frank, goes to fight in the war. Thomas, who is of age to be called up, does not go to fight. There are other similarities in the book. It's clear that the author, Michael Laurabiti, was describing the Stilwell family in his book. In the story, Thomas murders a young woman from London. Despite his crime, his mother, Agnes, defends him and protects him from detection. She washes some clothes and burns others. Frank has strange sexual habits, including voyeurism. Michael Laura Laurabiti was a vac- evacuated during the war to Arundel for a year, perhaps even staying at Fox's Oven at Otham. Was he friends with Thomas's younger brother, who was described as kind and gentle? It is possible that on hearing of Joan Woodhouse's murder, some personal knowledge of the Stilwell family and the teenage Thomas Stilwell convinced Larabiti that Thomas was guilty. It is possible that towards the end of his life, he died in 2008, Fox's Oven was published to address the injustice and the tragedy that had been imposed on the Woodhouse family. It may well have been Laura Beatty's intention to make life uncomfortable for the still-living Thomas Still, Stilwell without causing a lawsuit. Rumours in and around Arundel were that Thomas Stilwell was the illegitimate offspring of Bernard Marmaduke Fitzalan Howard, the 16th Duke of Norfolk, Stilwell's mother did work at the castle at some point. When it became clear that her son might be prosecuted for John's murder, did she seek help from the Duke? The author Michael Knight found out that the Duke sold, or actually gifted, the cottage fox's oven to Stilwell's mother after all legal avenues were closed. The Duke could afford Jackson's legal fees. In Arundel, the rumour had it that Thomas Stilwell was not his father's son. Thomas Rawlin Stilwell is mentioned unfavourably in police records as a useless drunk. <clears throat> he was not called during the police. during the private prosecution as a character witness for his son, as he didn't think much of his son and voiced doubts that he w- wasn't even his own child. So if Thomas Rawlin Stilwell was not the dad, maybe we should check with his mother, Ellen Agnes Parsons. Martin Knight discovered after searching land registry documents that Arundel Estate gifted Fox's oven in 1950 to Ellen Agnes. The estate bought back the cottage after Stilwell's mother, Ellen Agnes, died in 1976. Knight argues that the practice of aristocrats impregnating servants is a well-known trope he says, imagine a 16-year-old soon-to-be Duke raging with hormones and being able to take advantage of a deferential servant girl, older just by a few years, and sexually experienced. Ellen Agnes already had an illegitimate child, so it's not a great leap of imagination. Martin Kemp also pointed out the strong facial resemblance that the Duke and Thomas Stilwell shared. I'll post photographs on the Facebook site for Strange Stories UK ...in case anyone is interested. Thomas Stilwell died in 2008 and his mother died in 1976. Another interesting fact is that Justice Travis Humphreys... ...revealed in his private papers why he failed to reject the private... ...why he had to reject the private prosecution brought by the Woodhouse family. He wrote that he was 99% sure of Thomas Stilwell's guilt... But the fact of the matter remains that he was not cautioned before the interview, and therefore the key evidence of his statements would be ruled as inadmissible if it was ever to proceed to court. The caution, or the right to silence, says, You do not have to say anything, but it may harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something which you later rely on in court. Anything you do say may be given in evidence. Although no names are put forward, it seems that it was probably Inspector Narborough who failed to caution Thomas Stilwell. Although there was still sufficient evidence to try Stilwell, the case was not brought to court to spare the feelings and reputation of a police officer who made the most basic error in conducting the investigation and maintaining the credibility of Scotland Yard. The case is considered by many to be an establishment cover-up, with Stilwell's freedom bought by the then Duke of Norfolk, a rich landowner, rumoured to be the alleged killer's illegitimate father. The scenario of an alleged bastard son being tried, convicted and hanged for murder would not only have been bad for the reputation of the Duke of Norfolk, but also for Arundel, the aristocracy and, by association, the royal family. The police did not want to charge Stilwell because the fears of such a mood would trigger unwanted scrutiny in what from the outset was a highly flawed police investigation. In 2014, a police officer who served as a, a police officer at Arundel for some years and who took a special interest in the case said that Thomas Stilwell lived a few doors away from him in Pearson Road, Arundel. He said that Stilwell remained a suspect In the eyes of many of the townspeople, although they all had all they had were suspicions. He said that Thomas Stillwell used to collect the policeman's football coupons. The policeman told of how, in nineteen sixty-seven, when the new police station was completed at Littlehampton, all the police constables were employed in moving all the confidential stuff from the old station. He said that down in the cellars, he picked up a cardboard box and took it upstairs where he threw it onto the back of a van. He was then brusquely told by the sergeant to be a bit more careful with the evidence from that infamous unsolved crime, and he pointed out the name Joan Woodhouse on the box. It had contained the clothing in effect since 1948, and probably still exists somewhere, so if the evidence from the Woodhouse case does still exist, it could be possible to find the DNA and compare it with the living Stillwell descendants, or even descendants of the Duke of Norfolk. I suppose that if there was a will, then perhaps a cold case investigation could confirm what so many people have suspected over the years. Anyhow, so concludes the Joan Woodhouse murder case. Um, I'd like to thank Damsel Damselfly for providing the background music uh, and I'd like to say thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye